as we go ahead and get our Bibles out this morning to John chapter 17. I just want to highlight two things for you. Uh, Number one, uh, for the members of the church, Pastor Will isn't here this morning. Uh, The pastor of Mosaic Church, a sister church in town, their pastor began to get sick last night, reached out, asked if we could help with any young man who could fill the pulpit for them, and we were able to do that. So just praise the Lord that uh, the way that we've poured into Will uh, in the life of this church is, is able to serve another church. Amen. Secondly, also, if you're a visitor and you're here and, you know, I was, I was uh, having lunch with a visitor this week uh, who I won't embarrass by pointing out, as is the custom in small churches like ours. Uh, I was talking about the, what, the, the reasons why we do what we do in our church. And without ex- expounding on all of that, I just want to point out to any visitors here this morning that everyone who's been doing stuff up here, who's been coming up and leading the service and praying and reading scripture, they're all members of this church. You don't have to be professional clergy in order to serve the body on Sunday morning. We've all been gifted, and uh, I'm just thankful that, uh, that we are gifted in that way and that the members of this church do step up and, and serve our body. So, John 17. Can a piece of writing be simultaneously technical and beautiful? Technical and beautiful. Consider a refrigerator manual. Very technical writing, but not very beautiful. What about poetry? When we think about poetry, we probably think of flowery, free-flowing, very non-technical writing. And to be sure, some poetry is like that. But what about the very technical poetry of Herbert or Dylan or Byron? What about the highly technical structure of the epic poem, like that of John Milton's Paradise Lost? Very technical, very structured, also incredibly beautiful. Or consider the Japanese structure of poetry known as the haiku. We're all familiar. Very structured, very technical, very beautiful. When we think about writing, we tend to think of a spectrum with technical writing on one end and beautiful and creative writing on the other end. But that is just not correct. The truth is, is that the skilled technical writer use his technique to serve the purpose of beauty and creativity. Okay, now take all of that and let's bring it over and let's think about prayer. When we think of prayer, we think that it can either be theologically precise and well-structured and therefore stiff and boring, or it can be flowy and spontaneous and therefore edifying and enjoyable. This is also incorrect. We know that it's not correct because of many of the prayers that we find in Scripture, like the prayer that we're going to be studying together this morning in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is a prayer that is very well structured and also incredibly beautiful and edifying. Last week we began to look at the structure of this prayer. Do you remember? We saw that verses 1 through 5 have us uh, have Jesus praying for himself and the end of his ministry. Verses 6 through 19 have Jesus praying for his disciples. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And then verses 20 through 26 have Jesus praying for the church. As soon as we start looking at the structure of this prayer, some of us 
may feel like the prayer will begin to lose all of its beauty. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think there's something about seeing the intricate way that Jesus has woven this prayer together that should actually help us to see more of its beauty, more of its glory. So as we look at the second third, remember we said that there are three parts. This is the second part, the second third of the high priestly prayer. I'd like for us to do so by looking at the structure of the prayer. So these are going to be your points for this morning, note takers. Point number one, Jesus prays for his disciples. Point number two, Jesus prays in light of shifting circumstances. Point number three, Jesus prays for the sake of, and then I have, you're going to love this, five sub points. If you don't catch them all now, you can catch them when I give them to you. But Jesus is praying for the sake of their protection, their unity, their sanctification, their joy, and their mission. And then point number four, Jesus is praying, uh, Jesus' prayer is grounded in eternal realities. Now before we actually jump into the meat of the sermon, I want you to look at verse 20. John 17, verse 20. This is not actually the part of the, the prayer that we're going to really be studying this morning, but I do want you to see it. In verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask you for these only, and there he's referring to his 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So this morning, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to explain that, oh, well, this is for the disciples, but it's also for us. It's right there. Jesus tells us it's for his 11 disciples, but it's also for us. It's for, like the Great Commission, every person who calls on the name of Christ all the way down through the generations until Christ comes back. Does that make sense? Good. So let me pray because I need help and then we'll dive in. Father God, you have manifested your glory to us on the earth, but the eyes of our flesh are so often blind to it. Lord, this morning we are going to look directly into the glory of your word. And our hope, our great hope is to behold the power of the gospel in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. And we need your help for that. I need your help to communicate this glory. I am weak. I am small. I am unglorious. And everyone in this room, those who are going to be listening, they need your help. They are distracted. They are inclined to think about things in this life, in this world, that honestly do not matter at all. They will be tempted to distraction, to frustration. Lord, help us this morning in this local church to think less of ourselves and more of you, to see you in all of your glory until the day that you call us home. Help us to see it even more clearly, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Point number one, Jesus' prayers are for his disciples. This is what Jesus tells us. He tells us who he's praying for in verse nine. Go back and look at verse nine with me. Jesus, talking to the Father, says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I love the way that Jesus does this. He says it two different ways so that there's no confusion. Positively, Jesus says, I pray for them, those that you have given me. That's the positive angle. Those are the disciples. And then negatively, he says, I am not 
praying for the whole world. Now, we could say a lot about what it means to be a disciple, right? It means to be a student. It means to be a follower. Yes, amen, all of that is true. But if we go deeper, if we go down to the deepest possible level of discipleship, if we sort of pull back the curtain of humanity and peek behind it into eternity, what we find is that discipleship is defined by something more enduring than the concept of our actions. I follow Jesus. I study Jesus. What we find is that our discipleship is grounded in God's eternal will. So when Jesus says, I'm praying for them, Jesus doesn't have some generic idea of a disciple in his mind. He's not just thinking of anyone who happens to own a Bible. If you were to sort of walk into the Texas hill country in in the 1850s, every person in every home would have had a Bible on their kitchen table. They would not have all been disciples of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is thinking of a disciple, he's not merely thinking of anyone who just happens to call themselves a Christian. You live in the Bible Belt. You understand this. There are people everywhere you turn who call themselves Christians who are, in fact, not true disciples of Jesus. When Jesus is thinking of his disciples, when he's praying for his disciples, he's not merely thinking of those who do everything that they think that God would want them to do. Now listen, a true disciple should do all of these things. He should read the Bible. He should call himself a Christian. He should be walking in obedience to the clear commands of God. But this is not what defines someone in the mind of Jesus. As he's praying to the Father, this is not what defines someone as a disciple. When Jesus is praying, he's thinking about positionality. When Jesus says, I'm praying for mine, he's saying, those who are in the mind of Father, of the Father, taken out of the world and given to the Son. Friends, we must always remember that being a true disciple is not merely defined by what we do, but rather by whose we are. Uh, did you hear that S? Whose we are? Not who we are. That's, that's actually the problem most of the time. We think that our relationship with Jesus is defined by our own self-conception and our identity. No, our discipleship is defined by who do we belong to? Do we belong to the world or we do, do we belong to Jesus? So that's point number one. Jesus is praying for his disciples. Point number two. Jesus is praying in light of shifting circumstances. You can clearly see that in verses 11 and 12. <coughs> Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Jesus doesn't mean that at this moment he's been taken out of the world. He means that he will soon be taken out of the world. But he says, they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction." That the scripture might be fulfilled. So, so here's the sort of heart of Jesus' prayer. Jesus is praying in light of the fact that he's leaving. So he goes to the Father and he says, listen, I'm coming home to you. But they aren't. The ones that you've given me, they have to stay here. 
in this fallen world under the hateful attack of the evil one. He goes on, he says, Father, listen, while, while we were together, I did everything I was supposed to do. I was a good steward. I protected them. I kept them. I trained them. But now I have to go, and I can't do that anymore. I need you to protect them. So, parents, do you see the like, pretty immediate, obvious application that we can just draw out of this prayer for you and for your ministry to your children? In the same way that Jesus was entrusted with the care of his disciples for a time, you have been entrusted with the care of your children for a time. Now, yes, it's true that in one sense your children do belong to you. That's, that's real. You're going to have to give an account for the way that you have led and loved your children. But in another sense, in a more ultimate sense, your children do not belong to you. They belong to the Lord. They have been given to you for a time. You are merely a steward of your children's lives. You are a servant for your father. Your ministry to your children is to manifest God in their lives. Think about the 50,000 different things you could list under job description for mom and dad, right? A thousand, I'm the puke cleaner upper when they get sick. You know, I'm the tuition payer. I'm the, the booty spanker. I'm the whatever the case may be. I'm the alphabet teacher. But above all of that, you are the heavenly father manifester. You can just sort of see this in verse eight. Look, for I have given them the words that you gave me. This is Jesus saying, Father, you gave me these words. Now I gave them to my disciples and they have received them and they have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they believed that you sent me. So parents, your job as a stewards of your children is to do this. Jesus says, I received the word and then I gave it to them. That's your job as a parent. You have received the word of God. Now you need to give it to those that are in your care that they may be saved. Your job ultimately when I say ultimately, what I mean by that is you can fail at everything else and still do this and be a good parent. But you can fail at this and do everything else right and be a bad parent. Your job ultimately is to give your children the truth of the gospel. You can't make sure that they receive it. That's God's work. You can't ensure their salvation, but you can make sure that you give them the gospel. Yes, we want other things along the way, of course. Right? We want our children to be polite and well-mannered. We want them to be hardworking and conscientious. We want them to be healthy and successful. But the main aim is to minister the truth of God to them that they may be saved. So let's just stop and ask ourselves some questions. Is this priority expressed in the pattern of your parenting? Right? So when a problem arises in your family, where do you look first and most lastingly to find a solution for the problem? Do you look in the Word? Do you look to Jesus? When, when you're spending time together as a family, what sort of themes predominate the conversations in your home? That is, what do you spend most of your time talking about? Or we could ask, what sorts of things does your family obviously prioritize? Are sports more important than worship? Is education more important than discipleship? Is 
Family time more important than worship time? We'll find out this Christmas. I'm going to get a lot of text messages on Christmas morning. Oh, we're not going to be able to be there this morning, but I just wanted to let you know it's not because we don't love Jesus. <laughs> we'll see. In all seriousness, to the parents of Sixth Avenue, one day our children will leave the home. It's going to happen. It should happen. Right? That's the aim. Amen. Our children will not be under our immediate care and protection forever. The day is soon coming, and sooner than you know, mom and dad, when, like Jesus and the disciples, we will have to entrust our children more fully to the care of the Father as we release them out into the dark and dangerous world. On the one hand, we know that our children's destiny is something that we can't control. Like the disciples, the faith of our children is determined by the providence of God. And yet, like Jesus with his disciples, we must act. We must protect while they are in our care. We must disciple while they are in our care. We must minister while they are in our care. And then, of course, there's more obvious application outside of the home, outside of parents and children. Any discipleship relationship that you may be in, all of the things I just said, they apply there as well, right? If, if the Lord has given you the ability to lead and to love and to serve someone and to help them follow Jesus because you're just a little bit further along the road than they are, well, guess what? You have been made a minister. You have a stewardship over their lives. And while you ultimately cannot control the things that they will do and say and how the rest of their lives will go, you can control how well you love them while you do have that ministry with them. Point number two, Jesus is praying for the sake of the disciples, and then we have all these subpoints. Subpoint A, for the sake of their protection. Now, we already talked about that a little bit in point two, but there's something else I want us to see here in point three. Look at verse 15 with me. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You know, Jesus has given three years of his life to the disciples up to this point. And in this prayer, Jesus is talking about his disciples to the Father like a parent would talk about their children, like a parent would pray for their children. He says, I've loved them, I've protected them, I've taught them, I've given them all of myself I've loved them dearly. And yet Jesus knows that as he heads towards the cross where he will be killed and then he will be buried and then he will be raised and then he will ascend to the right hand of the Father, he knows that the disciples can't come with him. Some of them ask, right? We want to go where you're going. Just like, you can't go where I'm going. You got to stay here. Jesus knows that he's done everything that he can possibly do to prepare them for this risk, for this danger of being left alone in the world, but he knows that he cannot take them out of the world. Jesus is a realist. He knows that there is a mission that he accomplishes on the cross and with his resurrection. Nevertheless, the continuance of this mission, the carrying of this mission to its final conclusion, is something that has to be done, not by Jesus himself, but by his followers. And he knows that in order for them to carry this mission out, they can't go up to heaven with him. They have to stay here where the mission takes place. They have to remain in the world. 
which means that they have to face down Satan and the flesh and all the powers and principalities of darkness. Now, I want to take this back to parenting one more time. I'm going to, I'm going to beat that drum again. Because I think this is probably where the, the temptation to think wrongly about these things manifests most intensely. You see, as parents, some of us, maybe even all of us at some point, we want to shrink wrap our children, right? Uh, we love our children. We want to protect our children. We want to keep our children safe. Just, you know, bubble boy them, you know, just put them in a bubble. Don't let them be exposed to anything at any time. Just keep them nice and safe and healthy. But that's not the way it works. If we want our children to grow into thriving, healthy adults, even thriving, healthy followers of Jesus, they have to be exposed to this scary world at some point. So as parents, if we think about the home as a sort of bubble of protection, we have to know that one day the children will leave this bubble. They have to go out into the scary, cruel world. They have to be like sheep amongst the wolves. Now, of course, parents should not be foolish. We don't send our four-year-old son or daughter to drag queen story hour and say, you're a missionary. Go be salt and light. Father, protect them. We don't do that. That's, that's dangerous. That's stupid. It's bad. So how do we think about exposing our children to the world before we release them into it? Well, like this. We, we think of a home less like a bubble and more like a greenhouse. Right? You think about the purpose of a greenhouse. Right? A greenhouse is meant to expose plants at stages of maturity to more and more of the atmosphere without letting the plant be completely overwhelmed by the harshness of the atmosphere with the intent and purpose of one day strengthening the plant to the point where it can then be put out into the atmosphere where it not only survives, but also thrives, even in the midst of all the harshness. Now, I know that this sermon has been very heavy on like parenting application, which is totally fine. I know that we have single people and we have some empty nesters here, but we have a lot of parents in this church, so I'm happy to beat this drum. But we can go outside of parenting and children in the home and think about how this just applies to, to children in general, uh, excuse me, to discipleship in general. So let, let's do that now. Remember that the heart of this prayer is Jesus praying for his disciples that as they would remain in the world, they would be in it but not overcome by it, right? Are you seeing that? That's the, the heart of this sermon. So let's think about how that might flesh itself out in our lives. Let's think about Let's start with technology, okay? How do we relate to technology as followers of Jesus? Do we, do we try and live like the Amish and remove ourselves from all technology so that we might be protected from its potentially harmful effects? Well, the answer to that has to be no. Because to do that would be to assume that we can remove ourselves from the world entirely. Because Technology is woven into the very fabric of our existence. Even those wagons that the Amish drive, those are made with technology. We cannot extricate ourselves from technology. It's just in the world. It's part of it. Okay, so how do we interact with it without being overcome by it? Answer, we seek to use it and not be used by it. 
We allow it into our lives, but we don't allow it to lord itself over our lives, right? Think about how this applies to social media in your phone. Maybe some of us can't do without a phone, but you can do without Instagram on your phone. That's your way of being lord over your phone rather than letting your phone lord itself over your life. We use technology for good like Noah did when he built the ark rather than using it for evil like the rebels did when they built the Tower of Babel. We submit the use of our technology to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Or consider education. How can we exist in this fallen world in relation to education? Should we as Christians only ever read books written by Christians writing from a thoroughly biblical worldview? Should we only ever interact with ideas that are perfectly in line with the gospel? Well, friends, that's just not possible. Maybe the book thing is possible. You're like, Sean, I just don't read books. Easy for me. But interacting with ideas that are not in line with the gospel, you just, it's, just, it's just impossible. So then what's the solution? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and that's like the majority of the ideas that we encounter, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, there's an incredible logic of this verse. This verse assumes that we will not only encounter, but have to do battle with ungodly ideology. But it also assumes that we will do so like Christians. We will hold these ideas up to the touchstone of the truth of God's word. We will let God's word be victorious whenever there is a competition. Paul says, you cannot be taken out of this world of bad and false ideas. Finally, we can consider our relationships. Consider our relationships. Unless you live alone on an island, you will have human relationships in this fallen world. Should we only associate with other Christians? Should we, for example, cut off all relational ties to anyone and everyone living in sexual sin? Well, the Apostle Paul specifically says that that's not possible. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Listen now. Don't let the bathroom goers distract you. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. And his implicit logic there is that you can't go out of the world. It's not possible to go out of the world. I wasn't telling you not to have any kind of associations with sinners at all, because if I were to tell you that, I would be crazy. I would have to assume that you could be removed from this world entirely, but you can't be. This is just an echo of what Jesus is praying in John 17. Father, I can't remove them from this sinful world where they're going to contact, come into contact with sinful ideas and ideology, where they're going to be potentially influenced by wicked manifestations of technology, where they will have associations necessarily with people who don't know you. Nevertheless, Jesus prays, Father, let them not be overcome by these things. 
This should be our prayer for ourselves, for our family, for our children, for our fellow church members. Father, we know that you can't take us out of this world, and sometimes it's scary. But help us to live in exile like we are citizens of heaven. Help us to live in this realm of Satan and yet walk in obedience to our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It is not easy. Is it? It doesn't feel easy. I feel this world pulling on me all day, every day. Every second of every day. It just feels like there's something new where I'm like, that's going to lead me to hell. And I feel it just getting closer and closer and closer. And then we go through seasons of darkness and it feels like the presence of the Lord is further and further and further. Sometimes to, what Jesus is praying for, it feels like an impossibility. Do you know why it feels that way? Because it is an impossibility. Sheep don't survive amongst the wolves. Sheep die when they're surrounded by wolves. Wolves kill sheep 10 out of 10. The reason why Jesus is praying for this is because we desperately need the Father to move on our behalf. And man, have I got some good news for you. Jesus prayed this for the Father because he knew that the Father would answer yes. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you're a sheep living in the wolf, living amongst the wolves, if, if you are trying to maintain holiness, living in a world of corruption and darkness and evil, you can't do this. But God has promised, and that promise has been sealed by the blood of his Son. He has promised that you will not be overcome by this world. Jesus, subpoint number two, and by the way, you're thinking, that was just subpoint number one? We're going to be here all day. They're not all going to be that long. Like, for example, uh, unity, or B, unity, it's going to be very short. We're going to talk about this a lot next week, but for this week, I just want you to go to verse 11. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. For now, I just want you to see that the unity of the church, the oneness of the disciples of Jesus Christ is so important. It's one of the last things on his mind as he prepares to die. This sort of last thing, like, Dad, before I go, I just got some stuff I really need to talk to you about. Unity is right there at the top of the list. Come back next week. We're going to be talking a lot more about that. Next, Jesus prays for the sake of his disciples' sanctification. Sanctification. And you remember what sanctification means. It means to be set apart as holy. That's what it means to be sanctified. Both in position and as an ongoing process. Position and process. Now, if... If those two things kind of feel like they don't fit together in your mind, let me, let me give you a little thought experiment to, or a little illustration to help you see that. Um, my daughters, Patience and Isabella, they are Demars. Demars is? They're Demars. Yeah, they're Demars. Is. Why are they Demarses? Well, positionally, they are Demarses because they were born into the, into the Demars family, Right? But then, after they're born, 
they have to spend the rest of their young lives figuring out what it means to be a Demars, right? As soon as they pass through the birth canal, they don't understand the fullness of what it means to be a member of this family. It's a process for them as we love them and lead them and disciple them and training them and train them to be a Demars. And just so you know, in my family, to be a Demars just means that we're all screwed up, but it's going to be okay because we're just going to keep trying to follow Jesus no matter what. But they have to learn that. That's how it is with us and God. To be sanctified and to go through the process of sanctification means that we have been positionally made children of God through Christ and his finished work on the cross. And then the spirit administers that to our hearts when we are saved. And then now we are part of God's family. We are Christians. But then we have to spend the rest of our time on this earth being sanctified, learning how to live in light of that reality and identity, how to represent our family name. Now, with, with this understanding of sanctification mind, let's, in mind, let's go to verse 17. <clears throat> Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So here we have Jesus praying for the sanctification of his disciples. And did you notice, as we read earlier in the service all together, that in verse 10, Jesus refers to God as the Holy Father. Just look back there again, just so you can see it. Verse 10. Uh Uh-oh, not verse 10. Somebody help me in the audience. 11, there we go. And you know, I was just checking and you passed. Verse 11, he is referred to as the Holy Father. Keep them in your name, Holy Father. Now, whenever you see uh, an, a, a modifier attached to God like this, there's usually some reason for that in the context. In the context of John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus refers to the Father as Holy Father because he's praying for the disciples to be holy. So he's saying, you are the Holy Father, they need to be made holy, so I'm coming to you as the Holy Father and asking that you would make them like that. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, please sanctify them. He says, sanctify them in the truth. What this means is that in the mind of Jesus, the sanctification of God's people is directly tied to their apprehension and knowledge of the truth. So if you were to ask me, come up after service one day and say, Sean, how is God going to make me holy? I would point to this verse and I would say through the knowledge and apprehension of the truth. You may ask, well, Sean, what about suffering? Isn't suffering an instrument of sanctification? Well, yes, it is. You know what it does? It helps you to have a better personal knowledge and apprehension of the truth. Suffering sort of clears out everything that's getting in the way of your ability to comprehend the truth of the gospel. Now, this necessarily leads us to the question, well, what truth or whose truth, right? I say the word truth and in a post-postmodern world, everyone responds like Pilate did 2,000 years ago because nothing really changes. What is truth? Who are you to define what is true? Well, verse 17 tells us. Jesus says, I pray that they would be sanctified by the truth. Your word is truth. 
So Jesus says that my sanctification, your sanctification, our sanctification, us being made more like Jesus, is inextricably bound up with our knowledge and apprehension of not just truth in general, but the truth of God's word specifically. Now, I need you to hear what I'm not saying. It's very important that you hear this. I am not saying that more Bible knowledge leads to more holiness. That is profoundly not the case. I could tell you story after story of men and women who know the Bible front to back and have no intention of following the God or believing in the God that they know in that, ber- in, in that Bible, in that word. But I don't even have to tell you those stories. We could just go to the Bible itself and look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the experts of the law. They knew the Bible front and back, and yet sanctification was far from them. Holiness was far removed from them. The word, excuse me, the knowledge of the truth that leads to true sanctification is not merely intellectual, but it's faith-filled and personal. Go back to verse 3 in John 17 with me. Jesus says in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the knowledge that sanctifies us is a deeply intimate, deeply personal knowledge of the God who is found in the Bible. Why do we search the scriptures? So that we can know the God of the scriptures, the God who is the author of scripture, the God who gave us scripture to reveal himself so that we might actually have a knowing, loving relationship with him. Now, a necessary implication of what we see here in this prayer is that there is no area without exception. There's no asterisk. I'm not going to qualify this in any way. There is no area of your sanctification. There's no sin struggle that you could be wrestling through that cannot be helped by the Word of God. There's no problem that you have that may be getting in the way of your relationship with Jesus where the answer to that problem cannot be found in this book. Now listen, maybe you have some investment stuff going on. Don't come and ask me about that. And maybe don't search the scripture about it. I don't know that scripture speaks to whether or not you should do a 401k with matching or a Roth IRA. Talk to Trevor. Right? But if, if you're inclined towards idolatry with your money rather than glorifying God with your money, come to God's word. There's an answer there. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete. Do you see that? That's the language of sanctification. You're not complete. We're all aiming towards completeness, which is to be found in Christ. But as we aim for that, we look to God's word, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Friends, there are, there are many Christian teachers today, so-called Christian teachers today, who would have you believe that you can be sanctified apart from the truth. 
They tell us that all truth is relative. That's just your truth. It's not my truth. They tell us that truth can be set aside. They tell us to focus more on love than on truth, as if those two things are in any way in competition with one another. They will tell us that the word of God doesn't speak to any issue or every issue that may be hurting our holiness. What I need you to know is that these teachers are antichrists. They're antichrists. In in scripture, an antichrist is just anyone whose ministry is working at cross purposes with the ministry of Jesus, right? The ministry of Jesus is to lead us into all truth so that we might know the truth and then the truth might set us free. These false teachers are trying to lead us away in truth so that we might be bound up in chains and still captive to anything that Satan may want to enslave us with. They do this because they are imitators of their father, Satan, who has been trying to lead people away from trusting in the word of truth ever since the Garden of Eden. Sometimes outright and directly, God didn't say that, but sometimes just by trying to get you to not trust so much in the sufficiency of God's word. Are you sure that God speaks to this? Subpoint D. Jesus is praying for the sake of the disciples' joy. For the sake of the disciples' joy. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy, that is, that my disciples may have my joy. Fulfilled in themselves. If you consider an athlete and a trainer, and you think about the trainers training the athlete to reach a goal, right? Whatever Super Bowl ring, uh, national championship, uh, the gold in the Olympics, whatever the case may be, when we think about that, we think of the trainer not really caring about whether or not the athlete is happy along the journey you know, along the way. The, the trainer just doesn't care about that. It's not about you being happy. It's about you winning, you being the very best that you can be. It's about the gold. Sometimes I think, I fear, that this is how we think about God and our own sanctification and perseverance. We think that God only cares about the end result. The gold medal is us making it to heaven. And we think that's all God cares about. He doesn't care about our happiness. That's wrong. It's exactly opposite of what Jesus says here in verse 13, where he says that the ultimate aim of his ministry is that the disciples might have his joy. Now, we've talked about this a lot in John. This is a a predominant theme in John's gospel. So I'm not going to fully unpack this all over again, but I just want you to see that this is the point of Jesus' prayer. Jesus says, Father, Protect them, keep them, so that they might have joy. I just want you to consider something that is so obvious that you may drive past it every day and never notice it. They repaired a road in our neighborhood recently. I went over a speed bump. I looked at Amber. I said, I didn't know they put in a speed bump. She said they didn't. That speed bump's always been there. How have I never noticed it? Drive over that every single day. Never notice a speed bump. This is something like that, so obvious that... You might just drive past it every day and never notice it until someone points it out to you. God, because he loves you, wants you to be happy. And not a little happy. He wants you to be eternally happy in himself forever. 
This is the whole point of the gospel. Why do you think God sent his son Jesus to pay the price for sin and do away with the power of sin? Because sin is getting in the way of you being united with God where there is joy forever. If you just stop and just sit down, and if you could do it, we can't really do this because that's not the way the human heart works. It's dark and cavernous, and it's a mystery upon mystery, and we barely understand it uh, as much as we may try. But if you could sit down and look at your life and put all of your life down on paper (coughs) and look at the parts of your life where there is exceeding joy and happiness and look at the parts where there's middling joy and happiness and look at the parts of your life where there is a complete and utter absence of joy and happiness and if you could somehow do the calculus on your whole life's experience and look at the parts where you are completely and utterly devoid of joy, there you would find nothing but sin and doubt. And if you were to look at your parts, the parts of your life where you are most fulfilled and satisfied, you would, you would find the parts where Christ's light shines the brightest. Now, Jesus came so that even as we struggle through this life, trying to maximize our joy by putting sin to death, by being closely united to God, walking with Jesus, even if we don't do that perfectly, one day we will enter into perfect joy. Not because of anything in us, but because of what Christ did on the cross. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I don't know if you've ever heard a happy gospel presentation like this. I mean, happy. I'm spending most of my time talking about sin. But again, it's just because sin is preventing you from entering into happiness. But I want you to know that this is the heart of the gospel, the heartbeat of Jesus's Mission, the Father's eternal plan, the Son's execution of the plan, the Holy Spirit coming to apply that plan to your life, perhaps even this morning. The whole purpose of that is for you to be happy in God forever. And the only thing that's keeping you from happiness right now is your own sin and rebellion, which you choose every single day. But God says, you don't have to do that anymore. I've made a different path. I've opened the door to joy wide open. And look at my son, he's standing right there at the door and he's holding his hand out. And if you just take his hand and let him lead you by faith through that door, you will never know that misery again. And then one day you will never, ever even be able to remember the distant memory of that misery because you will be so enraptured with the joy of Christ. Christmas is coming up. We're not going to do a special message for Christmas, but I just figured this would be appropriate to even consider as the angels announce the coming of Jesus, the language that they use. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news, good news of great joy that will be for all people, even you. Subpoint number five, Jesus is praying for the sake of the disciples' mission. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, as you sent me into this world, so I have sent them into the world. What Jesus is saying is that the disciples are not going aimlessly into the world. You know, have you seen the videos where they release like the doves at like a wedding and sometimes they just, they just fall to the ground? <laughs> but if that goes well, it's, it's, it's a beautiful image, right? And, you know, but when you release the doves, you're not telling them where to go. You're not a bird trainer. 
they just fly out and they just go, you know? That's not what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's not just sort of releasing them into the atmosphere and fly, little birdie, fly wherever your heart may lead you. No, Jesus is sending them out into the world on a mission, a mission that they have received from Christ and that Christ has received from the Father. Friends, it's very important that we understand that God did not save us so that we could sit on the couch and eat Cheetos. Metaphorically, nothing wrong with eating Cheetos on the couch. I may do that today. One of the joys of Christ, one of the joys of the gospel. I don't know where I'm going with this. I should stop now. Now, (laughs) look at that. That's sanctification. Now, the reason why God has saved us is so that we might go out and call others into this great salvation. And this is just a general principle. Here's something for you to just tuck away and remember this and just keep it with you for like the rest of your life. And it will, I promise, come back and pay good dividends over and over and over again if you remember this idea. Whenever God blesses us with something, finances, family, faith, whatever the case may be, he intends us to use that blessing to then bless others. So just consider the language of 2 Corinthians. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. You're being afflicted. God is giving you the gift of comfort. That's what God is giving you. So that you may be able to comfort those who are in any way afflicted with the comfort that you yourself have been comforted by God. Everything that we receive from God, comfort, money, health, is intended to be shared with others for the sake of their good, for their blessing. In the same way that we have received salvation, we must then go and share this salvation with those who are lost and dying. Please understand that one of the reasons why Jesus is praying for his disciples is because he wants them to accomplish something. And the same thing is true of you. At the end of the day, The reason why God has you here, the reason why he has kept you in this world, the reason why he has protected you in this world is so that you can speak the truth of the gospel to this world for the sake of its salvation. Finally, we come to point number four. Jesus' prayer is grounded in eternal realities. Here we go. Olive oil. Kale. Greek yogurt, wheatgrass. What do these have in common? These are all, according to the Harvard Health Review, superfoods, which is very important, I've learned as of five minutes ago. Superfoods are the kinds of foods that offer maximum nutritional benefits, lots of antioxidants and fiber and vitamins and healthy fats and all of the above. You can say it another way, Superfoods are foods that pack a large nutritional wallop. Verse 6 of John 17 is kind of like a superfood Bible verse. As I'm giving you this analogy, I realize that it's not my best, but they can't all be winners. My point is, is that verse 6 packs a theological wallop. There's a lot here. I think you could develop an entire theology of election from John chapter 17, verse 6. Let's read it together. 
I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So let's just consider the richness of this verse. First of all, Jesus says that the disciples were yours. Two things, were, that's past tense. Not now, they were yours. When? In eternity's past. Then he says, yours. Who's he referring to? The Father. So in eternity's past, the disciples belonged to the Father. The second thing we see is that then they were given to the, they were given to the Son. Right? That is, the disciples were a very valuable treasure to the Father. And then that treasure was given to Jesus as a steward during his earthly ministry. Right? Third, the beginning of verse 6 tells us that the reason why the Father gave the disciples as a treasure to the Son that he should steward them is so that the Son would reveal the Father to them. So that Jesus would reveal the fatherhood of God to them. So just, there's a lot that could be said here. We don't have time to say it all. I just want to point out one thing to you. Consider this. There was a time... When the disciples belonged to the Father, but did not know the Father. There is a time when you belonged to God. You were his prized possession in eternity's past, and yet you did not know him. You needed the Son, by the power of the Spirit, to reveal the Father to you so that you could know your Father in heaven, who had chosen you. Man, there's a lot that could be said about that, but there is no time. And then finally, but exhaustively, you have to have this in any doctrine of election that is going to be biblical. You have the element of human responsibility in this prayer. The very end of verse 6 that says that the disciples have responded to the Son's revelation of the Father in obedience. And in verses 7 and 8, that's elaborated on. Father, says Jesus, Father... I have revealed you, they saw you, and they believed. Now, you'll come up to me afterwards and say, but the only reason they believed is because they were empowered to by God. I know that. But still, the Bible talks about this as if there is human responsibility, because there is. They believed, they responded to Jesus' ministry to them. So that's kind of the theology of verse 6. But as I was reading this verse, I just had a lot of questions this week. Some of this just doesn't make sense to me. So, So here's the first question. The doctrine of election is great. I love it. I'd go to war to defend it. I'm reformed. I love it. But why is Jesus talking like this in his final prayer? Why is he talking like this? Well, consider a thought experiment. Let's say that one day you encounter a father, maybe in the church, maybe in your neighborhood. Maybe you're really involved in your school and you see a father in the school who is not feeding his children. You come along and you see this dereliction of duty and you finally approach the father and you say, hey, you really need to feed those kids. You need to take care of your children, man. To which the derelict dad replies, why? Now there are a number of perfectly valid things you could say to the father as to why he should feed his son. You could say, well, because they're humans. And as humans, they're image bearers of God, and we should love image bearers of God, and one manifestation of love would be for you to feed them. That would be true. 
You could also say because they're children and you're an adult. And therefore it is morally incumbent upon you to care for the child who is in need. You could also say, oh, well, because the child is poor, he can't provide for himself. She doesn't have any means to feed herself. But you, you're an adult, you're a person of means, you have the ability, you have more, they have less, therefore it's morally incumbent upon you to feed the child. Now, are any of these wrong? Are any of them false? No, they're all completely true. But none of them go far enough, though they are valid. If you wanted to talk to this father and get to the heart of the matter, what you would need to say is, you need to feed these children because they're your children. They're yours. Therefore, it is morally incumbent upon you to take care of them, to protect them, to provide for them. That's what Jesus is doing here. Not in an accusatory way like in in this thought experiment. But what Jesus is saying is he's saying, Father... I need you to protect your disciples because ultimately they belong to you. The reason why Jesus is talking about the election of these disciples to the Father is because he's reminding the Father that ultimately the disciples belong to him. He says, they were yours. You gave them to me. I took care of them for a long time. I loved them. I gave them everything that they needed. But ultimately they are yours. So you need to take care of them. Look at the end of verse 9. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for, for they are yours. Okay, so that's, that's, that's step one. That's question one answer. This is all well and good, but it, it left me with another question. Do you think that God needs to be reminded who his children are? Do you think God forgot who his elect children are? belonged to maybe an earthly father would forget who his children are but the holy father the heavenly father he would never forget that so why does jesus feel the need to remind him that the children belong to him i mean if someone came up to me after service and said hey i just want to remind you patience and isabella belong to you i would be insulted i know that why are you telling me that Okay, then, then why is Jesus saying this to the Father? Well, I think the answer is found in John 11. Turn to John 11 with me. <clears throat> John 11, verse 42. This is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. He says, as he's praying to the Father, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now what this prayer does is it gives us a category. Jesus tells us that he prays to the Father sometimes so that the people around him will hear what he's praying and be strengthened. I think that's what's happening here in John 17. The disciples are about to lose their master. They are about to enter into a time of darkness and fear and struggle. And it's not going to stop until the vast majority of them are killed. They need to hear this from the mouth of Jesus. They need to hear it. 
They need to hear their master say, I know everything's going to be okay in the end because they belong to you. They need to hear Jesus say, they're going to be protected. They're going to be kept. They're going to be loved all the way till the end. And we need to hear that as well. The reason why this prayer is recorded in Scripture is so that you would read it and hear the same promises from the lips of Jesus. You would hear the same promises that the disciples heard that night as Jesus prayed so that you would hear them in the Word of God. You need to know when life gets hard, when the world feels like it's going to overcome you, when Satan's attacks feel like they are absolutely unrelenting and you will not survive, you need to hear that Jesus has prayed for you. You need to know that you don't belong to this world. You belong to the Father. You need to know that your ability to persevere to the end in no way depends on you and depends entirely on the Father's joy in granting the request of His Son. Your perseverance is not dependent on what you do in the next five seconds or five minutes or five months or five years. Your perseverance was decided in eternity's past. You know, when we talk about the doctrine of election, some of us immediately, we hear it and we think, oh, that's fine. I never thought about that before, but uh, yeah, it makes sense. Some of us are very opposed to it. It scares us. We were not discipled to believe in it. We were discipled to believe something in contra to the doctrine of election. And some of us are just kind of indifferent. We just throw up our hands you know, we just say, ah, that's something that theologians can argue about in blogs and textbooks and in the seminary classrooms. Friends, none of those responses ultimately is appropriate. The doctrine of election has been given to you for the sake of your perseverance. It's been given to you for the sake of your joy. It's been given to you so that your strength will be faith, uh, so that your faith will be strengthened, so that you can fight all the way home knowing that you're not fighting your own battle. And there's a lot more that can be said about that, but we are going to touch on it again next week. How long has this sermon been? Does anybody know? Miss Janice? Anybody counting? Nobody got on a timer? In closing, I just want to tell you, I know that... Uh, we spend a lot of time in the Word in this church. We read the Word, we pray the Word, we sing the Word, we see the Word in the baptism and practice of the Lord's Supper, and then I preach very long sermons, right? You're like, dang, you know? At my old church, we 30 minutes, 35 was, why, why do we do that? Well, it's because of this prayer. As you go back out into the world, brothers and sisters, Please know that the link to your ability to comprehend the knowledge and truth of God's word is directly connected to your ability to be in God's word, to study it on your own, to listen to it in audiobook form as you drive to work, to, to come to Wednesday night Bible studies and to, to, to be taught the word, to come to Sunday school class where people unpack the implications of God's word, to come to Sunday morning where you will hear the preached word. I have no problem preaching long sermons because I know that this is going to do your heart good. It does my heart good even as I preach it. And with that, we close out this 
second long sermon in the sermon series on the high priestly prayer. I will see you back next week for part three. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in knowing that you have loved us so well. We lament to know that we do not love you in kind, but we are filled with hope to know that your Holy Spirit will help us to do so, especially in light of what we have heard today. So we pray joyfully in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our only hope and Savior. Amen. 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 Church, let's stand and sing.